So, dear Zine, mm-hmm. what do you want to talk about today? So, we have an update on our <laughs> sort of woman in public episode, which is kind of sad and hilarious because re-listening to our episode after what has happened just made me sound hilariously naive. <laughs> like, I don't know if you remember yeah. me saying, because we're, we're talking about us both being on Twitter and that um, people are talking about you having an amazing Twitter presence. And I was saying that, like, yeah. on Twitter, I'm active, but I rarely say things in my own voice because I don't feel like I have anything to say. I know. We should actually put that clip in right now. Uh, we should really, like, go back and, like... Yeah. And, that, yeah, at that time, neither one of us had... We were, like, afraid that something was going to happen and it's kind of crazy that we thought we you know we recorded that episode and lo and behold you know the trolls come after you yep lucky me ah yeah so why don't you um explain what happened exactly in case our listeners don't know yeah so um yes the trolls came after me so what exactly instigated this um, as some of our listeners may know, one of my research areas of interest, and obviously it comes out of like a very personal area of interest, has to do with like thinking about uh, connections and conflicts, but also the possible coalition between peoples of color and this long history of it. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, indigenous and black, or um, thinking about Asian American settler colonialism and ingenuity, black Asian um, uh, relations and so forth. And a new book was announced called, and okay, so for, um, called The Souls of Yellow Folk, which is a riff off of mm-hmm. W.E. Du Bois's iconic early 20th century, The Souls of Black Folk, which was an amazingly pivotal piece of scholarship and literature that was beautiful and groundbreaking. But what's also really important about Du Bois's work is that he also opened it by articulating it as a problem of the color line and he sort of saw i think uh to to quote his words like um black people in america as being aligned as part of peoples of color around the world i think because he said that like the the darker races of the world um against white supremacy and the forces of colonialism and, and imperialism mm-hmm. and so he was one of the, like one of the main originators of the type of thought that i'm thinking of or a really important flashpoint Anyway, so like there's this book called The Souls of Yellow Folk. So immediately from that title, that's a, a lot to live up to. Mm-hmm. And there has has been other work that has done some, some, some of the things, like riff, riffs off Du Bois. So I'm thinking in particular of Eugene Prashad's work, The Karma of Brown Folk. And with Prashad's work in particular, he was um, used, riffing off of historian Robin Kelly's work that thinks about particularly like Black and Black Asian coalitions. And Vijay Prashad sort of took it up to talk about then about uh, Desi people, so people in the Indian diaspora, but also not just people in the Indian diaspora. So taking up this expansive way of thinking um, about where are Desi people in relation to uh, other forms of racialization. So yeah. what was the actual problem with the um, the souls of yellow folk? Oh yeah, sorry. What was the context there? Reading this description, and this book is not out yet. Looked like the focus was purely going to be on East Asians, which of course, is, I guess, yellow folk would be sort of that delineation, but that sort of erases Southeast Asians. But not only that, it didn't necessarily, it wasn't apparent from the description if there'd be any comparative work being done at all. Like, 
And also what was particularly worrying is that this author wrote this New York Times opinion piece around the whole Harvard affirmative action case, which if our listeners are less familiar, has to do with this a white lawyer ostensibly taking up the cause of Asian Americans being discriminated against Harvard as a way of undoing affirmative action in the U.S. And this has been really problematic because the legal team behind this has not been interested in Asian American causes. They've just basically been trying to advance this cause of destroying affirmative action before using white complainants, but now using Asian Americans, they seem far more successful. And so their goal is not about helping Asian Americans at all. That being said, like, are there discriminatory practices at Harvard? It it seemed like definitely from the files that they were sharing, it's the case. But this, so this op-ed did not take into consideration what this particular legal case is trying to accomplish. But also when they were talking about the anti-Asian discrimination that was happening, they completely erased why affirmative action is important, and particularly the anti-Blacks, anti-Latinx aims of destroying affirmative action and what are Asian American comparative racial dynamics between Asian North Americans generally and Black and Latinx peoples. And so that made me really worried that this work that is trying to be in the molded Du Bois is not going to be doing that kind of work. Instead, it's just going to be one of these things where East Asians, and there's also a long history of us being guilty of this, end up taking Black forms and just sort of trying to put it on an Asian American content and pouring it into the form without any sort of consideration for the nuances of our dynamics. And so not only myself, but like a lot of Asian American studies scholars that I know are very worried about this, looking at all the evidence that we have of what it might be. And so I was quite incensed. And so very uncharacteristically me, I tweeted about it. Da, da, da. I, re- I remember you, you, you had a very bold stance and it was like, I remember thinking, like, being very proud of you, being very excited, like, yes, you know, this is important to say this, to to make this context known, to remind people that that this is a framework that people are trying to use or rather misuse in a way that seems to benefit or highlight Asian American experiences, but doesn't do so in a way that actually elevates their cause or play or the relationship between other minority groups in the U.S. Yeah, I think the way that I phrased it is I said, like, as a diasporic Chinese, I find it shameful to call a book The Souls of Yellow Folk when your New York Times op-ed talks about affirmative action only centering anti-Asian discrimination and erasing anti-Blacks, anti-Latinx oppressions. And then I left it. I think I left it at that. At the time, I think I was think, I'm thinking of doing mm-hmm. a whole thread to like sort of explain more about Du Bois and so forth. But at the time, I was as angry as I was. I felt like that's as much as I wanted to do. I didn't want to go any deeper, even though I felt confident enough in the moment to put the one tweet out. And then I, maybe I should moderate. I, mm-hmm. At that point, um, it started getting picked up in a minor way in Twitter. People started liking it and retweeting it in my networks because, of course, I have a lot of other people who work on similar things in my circle. And so that sort of picked up steam the way that I think uh, a tweet does in a minor way over a couple of days. And then, you know, you stop hearing notifications. Then, like a week after I tweeted it, then um, the author mm-hmm. clearly did a search on Twitter for it. And he basically retweeted me. And his only response from what I could see was, well, I'm Korean. And that was about it. Which I... And I <laughs> so he retweeted your response. Yeah, and that was his one like response to my critique. And I can understand why he, he said that, because I said as a diasporic Chinese, and I sort of say like as a diasporic East Asian to explain why 
I thought that was, it was personal, but obviously not quite the same. And so, mm -hmm. but that was like the main critique. And I also then also had, a, I did have a follow-up tweet explaining that I thought that East Asians, because of our complicated history, have a particular responsibility to be careful about being transparent and very sensitive in terms of how we engage with Black forms because of our history of appropriation. And like, obviously, there's a possibility that the book will do that type of work. And so I hope to be pleasantly surprised. But then, yeah, after that. But then, yet again. Yeah, after that, all of a sudden I started getting tweets, just a couple at first, critiquing me, telling me that I was stupid. I was like, I didn't really think much of it because I feel like that happens every so often. But then it started happening a little bit more than I was mm -hmm. used to. Suddenly people started showing up with like few Twitter, like with, you know, the egg, no Twitter avatar telling me that yeah. I was a chick mm -hmm. or that I should be ashamed of being, uh, calling myself Chinese and things like that, which I also didn't think about wow. think too much about actually. Yeah. Like it seemed like there's one demographic that was basically sort of white supremacist alt-right people on Twitter. But then I managed to attract this demographic called, and I learned this term from some friends, MRA Asians, so men's rights activists uh, Asians, which are this sort of subsection. Yeah, wow. I know it's kind of a great term, but it sort of really captured, like captures that there is this demographic of Asian American men who are cisgender and straight, whose idea of activism has to do purely with the type of anti-Asian discrimination that's not structural and is often policing what women they can date and whether or not they think that their quote unquote women should be interacting with other races in what ways. And so it's a very like narrow view. Mm. It's a very masculinist view. It doesn't really take up queer causes. It doesn't really take up class causes. It's very chauvinistic. So basically helping Asian men get white male basically, privilege. Basically. And the thing is like, I've, I have friends who've been attacked by them before I feel like there's really been a rallying force on the internet that is probably less well-known than, of course, the, the rise of the alt-white um, in the last year. Other friends that I know who are Asian-American women scholars have been attacked by them to the point that they've been driven off Twitter when they've dared to critique like their sexism, wow. when they've brought up all these other issues. And so, yeah, talking, I think it was me basically talking about affirmative action in particular made all these people come out of the woodwork. None of them actually addressing that I was trying to do this comparative. The actual critique that you had, which was, hey, you're using this framework that is solely black, or I don't know, you're using the souls of black folk and you're using the souls of yeah, yellow folk. Yeah, and you should really be more attentive to it. And given the context of the type of work you do, I'm very skeptical about what the content could be. So actually, I didn't really think much about it, even a couple of days. I think I, I texted Liz and I was like, lol, people are saying racist things to me and I was like didn't really think about it but then I woke up yeah and then what happened when when did you start yeah, thinking about it a couple it? days after that I suddenly I'm like it was a higher level of, of abuse than I was used to but I just like blocked people or whatever and I didn't really think about it but then I, got, I woke up to an email personally addressed to me that was a hate mail thing and it was something like mm -hmm. you should be ashamed to call yourself Chinese you're a menace to your students, blah, blah, blah. And the thing is like Gmail, I think it obviously could detect that it was a hostile email. So it had this like little, it blocked a lot of it. Yeah. Cause it was like, uh, the rest of this message has been blocked because, and I was oh. like, Oh crap. Okay. And I was like, okay, I need to do something now. And then, yeah, then I started talking yeah. to some friends and then 
I finally, I decided to shut down my Twitter and then I asked friends for help. Patting myself on the back, I actually finally asked friends publicly for help as well in terms of not just blocking, but actually reporting the racist tweets that I was getting. And then you shut down for a while and, and then other friends came in and started um, reporting tweets that they saw coming against you. And then you just laid low and it's 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 kind of scary because this was all on one tweet that was based in the context. The context was the research that you study your role as a a scholar <laughs> um, questioning like you're a part of the field and part of the you know I would I don't want to I'm not sure I want to say perks but it is very common to say okay here's some literature coming out here is you know some context here's what we think about this you know like this is peer review essentially and your peer review is met with a not equivalent responsive review but that led to targeting mm -hmm. of trolls. Mm -hmm. And so it, it went from a scholarly, like a, it went from like a professional comment to a very like personal identity appearance, you know, threatening, you know, your personal space and your, your liberty. Kind yeah. Of and I think what was also scary is like, I'm sorry, as not only did I get the email, but all of a sudden I noticed that I was starting to get followed by some of the accounts that were trolling me and that they were retweeting me. And I noticed that, these were these alt-right accounts that when I looked at their timelines, they were saying so much racist stuff. And they were clearly all like retweeting like neo-Nazi stuff. <laughs> like that was what really scared me that they're clearly trying to sort of mm. boost me to the point of getting a type of attention that things were going to suddenly become an avalanche. And that's what really made me nervous. Yeah. And it's sort of funny, given like at the beginning of, right. of this calendar year, like our first episode was like me interviewing some scholars that came under this sort of attack and at least from talking to them and the interview that we did I knew a little bit about what to do but this sort of gave me hands-on experience yeah yeah so I think we should do two things one at the end we should actually state like in a listicle form the kind of things that people can do to protect themselves on social media when things like this happen we still to some degree participate in in social media and advocating for the causes we care about there are i know other women who just do not at all do not engage at all and it is not a not a safe space but it might be a good opportunity to help people understand what they can do to protect themselves so that they can still you know talk about what they know and, and be able to mm -hmm. be present i mean so this is, uh, listeners, this is what I learned about what you should do when you come under attack. And so hopefully this will be educational and hopefully mm -hmm. you'll never have to do this. But it's something to bear in mind in this age where a scholars respect have public platforms, but the protections are really there. Most of all, of course, shut down your accounts. I turned my account to private. I made sure and I checked all my other social media accounts and made them uh, and tightened their security as well, regardless of whether or not I'd been attacked on them. Went on my website, I took off my contact information. And then what I made sure I did is I put out a public plea to all my friends that had Twitter, asking them to check my timeline and to report abusive tweets. Because at that point, if I didn't do anything and I just came back, of course, there's a possibility that that could all still be there and those accounts still be active and they still come after me. And so 
what that entails is basically you can just go to an individual tweet and report as offensive and explain why. And it's helpful to have people other than yourself to do it because at least that's what my friends have told me, because then I guess it probably looks more quote unquote objective and they probably get like a higher volume of complaints in the system. Mm-hmm. One thing that was also particularly useful that one of my friends, Andres, told me about is, of course, on the one hand, blocking doesn't really resolve the fact that there are people that started to follow me that were trolls. And I wasn't quite sure what to do because I was like, okay, so there's two options on Twitter. You can mute a person and you can block a person. When you mute a person, you just don't see their tweets and they have no idea that you've done anything. When you block them, they can see that um, you block them. And that often tends to actually uh, incense people. It gets them really riled up even more. So usually I just mute. But in this case, it's not enough that my usual muting strategy doesn't work because they're also trying to boost me. So I'd actually have no idea, for instance, if they were trying to boost me and then I could just contain more abuse. So I thought I was just trapped. But my friend Andres pointed out what I can do when, when you put your account in private is that you can block them and that cuts them off of your follow list. But then you can go to their account, unblock them and then mute them. And so what that achieves is that the blocking helps to cut them off from following you Doing the unblock means that they can't, of course, they won't see that they've been blocked before. And then the muting accomplishes what you originally wanted to do, which is not to see what they're doing at all. And they have no idea that you've done that unless they explicitly check their follow list. So that was really useful. And basically, it was about hunkering down on social media for about a week. For me, that was enough time. And it was really nice. I had a lot of People who messaged me personally who'd also noticed on Twitter, because I put the uh, call for help on Facebook primarily, who messaged me on Twitter because they saw that my account had become closed and they're like, oh no, as other as other women on the internet, we know what this tends to mean. We hope you're okay. And so I really appreciated all the help that I got from my friends across my various circles. I think that if things had also escalated, there's also the question of like what institution would protect me. And for me, of course, that's sort of a an anxious question to ask because I'm finishing my postdoc at UBC. So I don't think I'd be protected by them and actually have a few Mm -hmm. months before I get covered, um, protected by UCL. And so uh, at that case, I didn't really think that there's any points of looking institutionally. Also, I think if the, if the original hate email had gone to an institutional email, that probably would have been easier for me to report as it was. I just blocked it. So what kind of institutional support would people be able to expect? I, I wasn't aware that institutions actually yeah, do anything Yeah, um, so what help. I learned from uh, my interview with Daniel and Carrie, the geographers, is that what helps is to know, like, check with your institution to know that they have your back, like they're not going to throw, throw you under the bus. Like, do they have some sort of policy? And they said also the communications departments of the universities can be really helpful in terms of, like, giving tips and in general, like if they might have to, I guess, probably issue a statement that, that the institution stands behind you. So I, for instance, one of mm. my friends and our former interviewees, Bridget Fielder, also got attacked by trolls that same week that were rallied by no other than Star Trek star William Shatner, because she was calling out, drawing attention to this vast body of scholarship, mm. pointing out the racism of the Little House and the Prairie books, particularly led by amazing indigenous women scholars. And in her case, but also her union had her back. And so that, that's a, yeah, a good example of how employers mm-hmm. can have like her right. union like tweeted that like, like something like that was shameful that William Shatner was, was attacking her and that they were standing behind her. And that was particularly important because Shatner was actually calling for the firing of her and um, other 
another uh, black woman scholar, you know, right. basically implying that. Or implying it, yes. So yeah. that's definitely the kind of support that you can seek. And also, oh, Bridget also wanted me to bring up that that ended up on higher inside higher education, a race that indigenous women academics that were actually leading a lot of the research were sort of ignored by the coverage, even though it's their research and she sort of saw herself as not bringing something new to the conversation, but trying mm. to draw attention to the work that they were doing. And in a way, the in higher education piece seemed to be more interested in the trolling mm -hmm. than the actual critique, like the critique. And I think thus the indigenous scholars took second or third place to the fact that, oh my gosh, some faculty were, were, um, trolled by, uh, William Shatner, a high profile, ideally beloved, um, movie star. So, I mean, that, that was, that wasn't really interesting. And to see a journal, particularly a, a, a journal that focuses on, um, higher education, academic issues, not actually pay attention to the academics involved, mm -hmm. like the scholarship. But maybe not surprising in this current journalist field where they didn't actually even talk to any of the people involved. Mm -hmm. They just yeah, quoted the like tweets. Yeah, it's like sort of fast turnaround for journalism because journalism has been eroded. Yeah, been eroded yes, as an institution. Yes, fast journalism. Fewer, fewer people are being funded for that work. They have to just like churn stuff out. And that's also what I'd heard with like the Carrie and Daniel stuff is that when their stuff got taken up by Washington Post, they didn't get interviewed at all. They suddenly had this piece that was done at them and that sort of threw them to the alt-right walls. And in the case of the Shatner stuff, he was also basically calling on his followers by retweeting these women of color scholars to come mm -hmm. after them. And as people may know, who are list uh, our listeners may know, the world of science fiction and the geek world in general has been a very toxic space for the last several years because of Gamergate. And so there's a lot of people who are very willing to jump on the states and by women, mm -hmm. by people of color, especially, and especially, of course, women of color. They're really prepared to attack. It was funny because I woke up also, I think, the day that happened with Bridget and I was exercising and I got a message from her being like, what a world. I've been trolled by William, like William Shatner is attacking me on Twitter. Mm -hmm. I was like, what, what is happening? And then I had to like, go and catch up. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Like what a world is well, this? That's been an interesting experience. I'm glad that we're having this conversation again, you know, more than once is, is enough. It was more than once is useful because I, I, I feel that as the communication, the ways that we communicate evolve, um, people and their trolling habits evolve with it. And part of learning how to deal with this is to understand mm -hmm. what is actually happening to you and what is like, or the fact that people are strategizing about this. So is, so it's not just like this one person, but it's like a mass effort with very intentional, you know, intentionally try to, Mm -hmm. to diminish you or destroy um, you. And that was something I didn't quite understand. It's easy to think like, it, it's hard to like imagine the scale mm -hmm. at which this is happening. Go I also ahead. felt like I didn't really take action initially because I saw the, the harassment as being so minor compared to people that we know, like Chanda, like the stuff that she gets, like it seems so minor comparison that I felt like it was almost wasn't worth complaining mm -hmm. about. It was only when I got the email that I realized I, I had to do this. I had a wake up call and I realized I had to make sure that it didn't escalate to anything larger because there are forums, for example, with MRA Asians, there are, there are forums on Reddit that are dedicated to highlighting people that they want to attack and making it an issue of it. It's never quite as casual as you think it is. Mm -hmm. And that's why it really also, you have to ask for help from people around you because 
they're organized, you need to be organized too. And you're not alone. And that's, I think, important thing to remember. I, I think that's really great and, and then great to end on. Perhaps in the notes or on our um, on our social media feeds, we'll <laughs> write down these lists more explicitly um, and then highlight some of the other conversations that we've had in the past where people talked about dealing with this kind of pressure on social media because I really get depressed and sad when people stop talking about mm-hmm. the things that they study because they don't feel protected because they don't understand this isn't casual. Or we just say, like, even you earlier in the conversation said, um, yeah, I wasn't worried at first because <laughs> this was my normal level of trolling. And I thought, wow, like your normal level, what does this mean if you expect to have a normal level? But Anyway, that's, 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 I think every woman who listens to this understands that we put up with a lot of things. Oh my God. But the trolls are gone for now. Um, Zion, do you think this has changed your willingness to no. tweet again? I think that I have a better sense of what to do now and to be sensitive to when things are picking up steam in a mm-hmm. negative way. And I think that's definitely like the fear is that even though I have, I'm no longer on, uh, have a secure or, or rather a private Twitter account. Like I don't want to have to, I don't want to have to have internalized it to self police. I stand by my issues. If anything that has sort of strengthened my resolve that when I tweet in my own voice, when I choose to do it, I will, the, the causes that I will choose will be the ones that are close to my heart and are important to me. And that doesn't change that at all. Whether or not mm-hmm. I have the energy to produce every issue mm-hmm. is a different matter because I, I don't yes. have that type of time or emotional energy personally. But when I do it, I'm going to mm-hmm. try to be as eloquent and as careful and as responsible I can be, but I will not let myself be silenced. Mm-hmm. And as Zion like as possible. Thanks and we will stand by you when that happens. Okay. <laughs> Well, I think that's it for now. This is our great yeah. follow-up episode. So unfortunate. Don't Again, like just listening to the previous episode, I was no. like, oh, you poor fool, <laughs> a month later. <laughs> poor fools. I know. I know. I know. One time someone said that, that one of my tweets was the most Trump-like thing of humble, unhumble bragging that they'd ever seen. And wow. I just, whoa. Okay. All right. Look for us for more episodes. I think we're going to be talking about being a woman on social media a lot more. Um, and I think we'll probably try to highlight more stories of people who are at different stages of their career who've dealt with this. Um, cause that might be really important. But in the meantime, you might actually, we have some episodes coming up, but I also want to be, uh, I, I want to highlight that Dr. Zhang Yao is transitioning to her Professor Yao position. She is um, in the process of transition and really excited for her and a lot of changes about to happen and there's so many exciting things coming up, but we also may not hear from her (laughs) besides our pre-recorded podcast. So let's all wish Zion a happy... I know, Zion never stops working, but... She's moving and there's a lot on her plate and I'm super proud and excited for her as she starts this new journey into another stage of being an awesome PhD. Thanks listeners for being there for us.